Hello, Pedra Pearls listeners. It's Monday, October 9th, which means it's time for another Monday re-release. In honor of Eczema Awareness Month, we are continuing with our atopic dermatitis theme. This is the first podcast in our Emerging Therapies for Moderate to Severe Atopic Dermatitis in Children series that was sponsored by Pfizer and was released originally in December of 2021. Hello and welcome to the Pediatric Dermatology Research Alliance podcast program. I'm Jen Dawson, Pedra's Outreach Manager. In today's episode, you'll hear from leaders in atopic dermatitis discuss and answer questions about systemic therapies for pediatric AD. Well, welcome to our PEDRA podcast, and we're really excited that the Pediatric Dermatology Research Alliance has set up um, some uh, uh, educational modules, and um, today we'll be discussing systemic therapy for moderate to severe atopic dermatitis in children where are we? So I'm Dr. Larry Eichenfield, and I'll introduce the rest of the faculty for tonight in a, in a little bit, but wanted people to know that this is part of an initiative that's gone on really looking at emerging therapies for moderate severe atopic dermatitis in children. And if you haven't seen the PEDRA webinars uh, that were produced, we have them available. You just go to the uh, PEDRA website, Pediatric Dermatology Research Alliance website, and Click on education, and you should be able to find your way to our uh, 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 to the two webinars that we've done. And this podcast will be discussing, you know, systemic therapy, and um, and we'll be following it up with a town hall um, on December eighth, twenty twenty. And the town hall is basically is going to be well, it's going to be pediatric atopic dermatitis open chat night, if not open mic night. And the whole object is to get our great faculty, along with some visiting faculty, because uh, both uh, Eric Simpson and Emma Goodman, two uh, uh, international leaders in uh, atopic dermatitis research, will be uh, joining us for, uh, to just go through questions from, the, uh, uh, questions from the attendees about where we're at with a pediatric uh, atopic dermatitis. And let's uh, review the faculty for tonight. I've already said I'm Larry Eichenfield. I'm a professor of dermatology and pediatrics and chief of pediatric dermatology at Rady Children's Hospital in UC San Diego. Um, And then we have Dawn Davis, professor of dermatology and pediatrics, division chair of clinical dermatology and director of the section of pediatric dermatology at Mayo Clinic in Rochester. Dawn, you want to say hello? Hey, Larry. Hi, everyone. My pleasure to be here. And Bob Gangs, the assistant professor of medicine and pediatrics to the division of adult and pediatric allergy and immunology. He's also co-director of the severe asthma program and co-director of our multidisciplinary atopic dermatitis program at UCSD Rady. Bob, you wanna say hi? Hi, thanks for having me. And Winnis Tom, who's clinical professor of dermatology and pediatrics, as well as fellowship program director um, uh, in our division of pediatric and adolescent dermatology at UC San Diego and Rady Children's Hospital. Winnis, want to say hi? Hello, it's great to be a part of this, this discussion this evening. So, without further ado, thank you guys for joining us tonight. And we have a, a set of questions. We're just going to have some discussion of where we're at. And the, the first question I'm going to start off with. Um, well, since those uh, webinars were done, is there anything new that's been happening? Any new data that's out? 
And uh, I'll answer that because um, I'm one of the people who had to work through the piles of new information that came out in the EADV meeting. So the European Academy of German uh, Venereology just was uh, just completed uh, right at the end of October. And there were 40 presentations on atopic dermatitis, posters and presentations. Um, not all were at the point where they're right discussing um, pediatric atopic dermatitis, but, but just to let you know that there is a flurry of information, which I'll highlight. So we'll be discussing biologic agents tonight, and there was new information on dupilumab it's in children looking at long-term laboratory data with dupilumab, which first of all, didn't show anything worrisome. It also showed pretty interesting um, decreases in LDH, which is similar to something that's seen in adults as well. So I think in more inflamed patients, LDH is elevated in atopic dermatitis patients. Um, and then there was other, uh, other aspects of the labs weren't especially uh, remarkable. There was a um, paper on nemolizumab. So nemolizumab is an IL-31 blocker. Um, they, uh, there was presentation of a study that included patients 13 years and older who received the um, uh, injections of nemolizumab. This was actually a um, review of a study uh, out of uh, Japan. Subsequently, it's been a, it's, uh, was published in the New England Journal of Medicine, and then a post hoc analysis in, in adults. And um, so we'll see the easy score, easy 75 rate was in the 16 to 75. Uh, I'm sorry, 16 to 26% uh, made it to easy 75, easy 90 of 4 to 7%, uh, not quite as um, impressive as some of the other biologics like uh, uh, that we've seen. Um, so we'll see as that plays out and they do more pediatric studies. The JAK inhibitors had a ton of data presented at the EADV, issues that we're gonna be dealing with because two of the JAK inhibitor projects included adolescents in their core studies. So now we've seen the phase three studies for both um, abracitinib um, and upanacitinib, uh, which included uh, adolescents. And abracitinib is you know, a new JAK inhibitor that's been developed just for uh, atopic dermatitis. And uh, uh, data was presented showing you know, very high rates of clear and almost clear uh, 40 to 50% uh, rate in individuals, very rapid itch response with abracitinib. And the new study, uh, a new study presented EADV was actually an adult study, but it was a direct head-to-head -head with dupilumab. It's called the Jade Compare study. So we'll see how that works out in pediatrics, but it basically showed that the lower dose abracitinib was very, very dupilumab-like. The higher dose abracitinib brought probably higher clearance rates more quickly, but of course the JAK inhibitors will have a different profile of side effects um, with them, uh, including you know labeled risks for thromboembolism and malignancy. Though the side effect data profile on abracitinib had looked pretty good so far. Upadacitinib is another JAK inhibitor and in that uh, uh, had, um, they presented their initial phase three data, again, including adolescents. They had uh, easy 75 rates in the two different studies in, the, in around the uh, 72 and 79%, uh, uh, very high. Um, uh, and then starting to show in one of the studies, uh, easy 90 of 65% of 53%, meaning a 90% improval in about 50 to 60% of the patients, depending upon the dosing that was being used. 
and very, very rapid uh, decrease in itch within a few days of the start. So it'll be very interesting to see. Um, there is, you know, baricitinib has also been in study, but they haven't done uh, pediatric studies as well. And there's also some nice studies looking at, at trelokinumab, a new IL-13. They also haven't done pediatric studies, but showing impact on staph with an IL-13 blocker, um, which was nice to see as well. So my big takeaway for the audience is like, there's lots of stuff happening every few months. <laughs> there's this huge data, data stream that's coming and we'll be working to figure out how we take the data that's seen in adolescents or younger kids and bring it into our practices. And now let me turn to the rest of the group and say, here's my next big question. What would you say are the biggest challenges for pediatric moderate severe disease today and looking into 2021? So I can start off. I think, I think it's incredibly exciting, the therapies that are, you know, come and are continuing to come and the breakthroughs. Um, and certainly there are some patients and parents who are ready to jump, you know, to those, but you still have a quite a big subset who are still, you know, very fearful of side effects of medications, even from topicals, you know, let alone as we're discussing, you know, something that could be injected or orally taken. Um, you have some where they're still fighting through, you know, is their child's condition, is this steroid addiction, you know, that they're trying to wash their kids out of. So I think there's still, you know, a lot of areas for education and sort of, you know, bringing parents along and patients along to, you know, where state of the art is um, and the ability to really mitigate disease um, and not have the, the amount of suffering that we've seen. I agree with all the things that Wynne has just discussed. I also think that now with a plethora of, um, of uh, different systemic uh, treatment options that are on the horizon, I think that we also need to kind of change patients and their parents' overall mindset. I think too many people have settled and or are settling with, you know, I mean, my kid always looks like this. I mean, these, I mean this is good for, for my kid. Well, it may be good for that person at that time, but it's not good and it's not being controlled. And I think that, you know, when we had limited repertoire of uh, systemic options and things that had a lot of uh, adverse reactions, I think, I mean, we didn't really have much more to offer, but now we do. I think a big part of this is changing the mindset of these patients. And of course, then also looking at sort of where now we have all these different options. We didn't have that many toys before, and now we have lots and lots of different interventions. And where do we start, and how do we, um, and 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 how do we educate the patients on this, and how much shared decision making do we want to bring in on this, and um, and 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 you know, I mean, weighing the pluses and the minuses of all these things. I mean, some of these are based on convenience and patient preference, but also a lot of this is also assessing the patient's comorbidities and, um, and making a clinical judgment. So I think with all the opportunities lies many interesting challenges in the future. Yes, I would agree with that. And what I would say is that after you get them over the hump that Winnis described and the practicalities of treatment that Bob described, then you have the logistics of actual execution because prior authorization and the process is very difficult. Very few insurance companies are covering these like they would cover other systemic drugs. And then sometimes when they are covered, 
the co-pays for patients are, are exorbitant and beyond their financial means. I do find it to be a little bit easier to cover when patients have multiple diseases where the medication would be helpful. And those are also the parents and patients in my um, experience that are more likely to be more willing to try a systemic medicine from the get-go. Yeah, I think that's a, a great point, Donna. Um, I struggle with a, a sense that um, there's no one who's saying, oh, eczema is not a big deal. We're not going to cover it. It's not as conscious as that. It's just, this is another drug. We're not going to cover it. <laughs> and, um, and our newer products certainly caught cost more than many of our older systemics, but we know the older systemics weren't used <laughs> very much and they're not necessarily that cheap. Um, but I definitely see there's inconsistency in terms of, 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 uh, of access. You know, I had, I had a patient this week where it was denied because the was approved 12 plus and it's a nine-year-old. It was like, no, that's an old, <laughs> they need to update their, they need another excuse. <laughs> Yes, they need to update their formulary. And the other thing is, is that we talk about time going to the lab and lab draws that other medications require that are systemic and maybe less expensive. But if you think about work and school, truancy, quality of life for patients, lab draw costs, et cetera, you know, these new systemic drugs have a lot of validity and healthcare cost savings with, and quality of life improvement. Yes. And a lot of these things actually take, I mean, a lot of the, a lot of the formularies, they don't they don't make changes as the, the, the label changes. I mean, we've inquired about this and Larry, I mean, like what you described to I me mean, is something that we encounter all the time with, with Dupilumab. It, basically the formulary says, well, the label may change, but we don't update our formulary until six months from now. And so until we do that, we're not covering it. doesn't matter what the label says. So I think, I mean, we always face these types of challenges from plan to plan. So summarizing the answer to the biggest challenges, it's partially that patients and families aren't ready and the insurance companies put up barriers because they're just not ready to necessarily cover, cover the cost. Do we think the pediatric derm and the allergy community is ready? I think our colleagues are excited. And I think this is what we've been waiting for in pediatric medicine for a very long time. First of all, we have a repertoire of systemic medicines that appear to be safe. And second of all, drug companies um, and grants have been very gracious to start testing things in adolescents and then younger children so that we have scientific data to back it up versus conjecturing off of adult data. No, that's true. Um, I think Bob, from an allergy, I'd like to hear an allergy perspective on, on where you think things are in the community. You know, it's exciting because, I mean, 40% of our boards is, is on basic science immunology. So it's, we've been dreaming about using these type of targeted precision medicine for a long, long time. Having said that, we also recognize a lot of these uh, new uh, treatments came from studying our primary immune deficiency patients. And we are also a little bit uh, reticent because we know the consequences of overblocking some of these things. I mean, if you overblock jacks, I mean, then you end up uh, potential of immune deficiencies, and a lot of those also signal through the hematologic uh, of receptors. So you worry about a lot of those things. So as we see the potentials being unlocked from harnessing the power of the immune of, of precision medicine in immunology, we also understand some of the risks involved and are a little bit reticence and, and, and slightly anxious about the safety aspects and tolerability aspects. So I think it's the yin and yang of this, that 
um, we, we, we come to this cautiously optimistic and with the promise that this unleashes and, but also with the potential things that we need to pitfalls that we need to uh, be on the lookout for. Uh, my next question to the gang is, has to do with sort of your, your maybe not formal phenotyping of patients, but, but how much do you try to figure out what the flow of a patient's eczema course is and, and is that important in your consideration for which systemic therapy to, to use? So for instance, there are patients who just, their eczemas, you know, they're always gonna have a 35 plus easy score if you measured it, but they always have significant disease. They have a high body surface area and they say that's the way they are. You know, their, their skin hasn't been clear, but it has never been 70%, 60% or 50% better than what you're seeing on that day. And then there are other patients who say that they're really in much better shape, maybe not clear skin, but, but focal disease, but a few times a year, they get these big flares. How much time do you spend trying to tease that out? Is that important? Do you think it might be more important in the future as we're deciding between like biologics and, and JAKs? You know, I wanna make a comment on that. I think that it may actually be more interesting to look at this because right now when we just have to Dupilumab, but you don't want to start and stop, start and stop Dupilumab. It's probably not that important. But once we have therapies, oral therapies, that we don't have to worry about uh, the potential immunogenicity if we start and stop and may have a more rapid uh, onset of action, that may be important to tease out because if someone is chronically long-term, uh, we may want to put them on something that potentially may have a slower rate of onset but safer and, and we can keep them on long periods of time and not worry as much about, about safety. Whereas for people who have, I mean, exacerbations for a period of time and then, and then remission, relapsing and remitting people, we may consider some of the things that work a little faster, but we may have to be on the lookout for more safety um, monitoring. Yeah, I'd be really interested in Winnis's perspective that she has both a textbook on systemic therapy and and managed uh, a, a lot of uh, pediatric uh, patients with azathioprine, mycophenolate, methotrexate, cyclosporine. What's your well, sense? Yeah, I mean, it's definitely interesting, you know, to think about because you do see, you know, the the patients you know are going to be bad and keep it longer. And I think we're much more comfortable with biologics just because we've used them so much for psoriasis, you know. For medications relative to maybe the JAK inhibitors. I mean, I think they've done quite well seeing them in the trials, but I do worry a little bit more about, you know, long-term immune effects. And certainly we're dealing with a pandemic. So it may be something that, hey, if somebody needs it for good control, but six, nine months, you might do that, you know, and get them off versus, you know, an injection medicine that I do think, you know, could use longer if needed, um, you know, albeit, you know, they do need to continue with that. So I, I think these are the things that are going to be, you know, teased out more and more as we start to use these medications and have them in our armamentarium more. Let's discuss lab evaluation. Um, you know, one of the pleasures of Dupilumab was the discussion that you don't need laboratory tests, uh, you know, to monitor them and no baseline tests. But the other hand, I know that some, some uh, AD experts, um, like to do some blood testing. Uh, um, LDH I already mentioned sort of varies with severity of the disease. There are some other um, acute phase reactants that may correlate as well. 
In Japan, TARC is actually serum TARC is a standard test and also correlates with clinical response, though certainly not something that we've done regularly in the uh, in the U.S. And then IgE may not necessarily correlate with disease in individuals. That's the old party line, though some of the studies are showing IgE changes with time. With Papillomet, I'd be very interested in in uh, particularly allergies perspective on that. So any of you more open to laboratory testing in terms of assessing the whole, the whole patient, not necessarily to monitor a biologic there, get it going on. So, I mean, so I think, I mean, you raise a lot of really interesting points here. I mean, TARC, otherwise known as CCL17. I mean, it's, it's, it's an, it's an interesting chemokine that's associated with type two inflammation and across the board in, in eczema and asthma, uh, even now they're looking at in, uh, in IgG4 related inflammatory diseases. So it is sort of like a type two um, inflammation biomarker. Um, now, I mean, the utility of that is, is yet to be seen because I mean, how does that mean measure up to I mean, if the patient's doing well, I mean, you can also make the argument, who cares what the target is? And if the patient isn't doing well and the target's going down, so what? So, but I think that, I mean, one, the, the, the values of these biomarkers, I think, is, is for us to better uh, endotype patients. I mean, endotyping, I mean, we've done that in a variety of diseases. We haven't really done that enough in this disease. And, and I think it's really combining mechanism of action with the phenotype. And, and I think that it will allow us to kind of better decide on on treatment options as we look into things that are predominantly T2 interventions versus things that are broader and reach beyond uh, T2 inflammation. So I think that from an endotyping standpoint, it's beneficial, but perhaps not from a tracking individual treatment standpoint. Yeah, and I will say um, I may be a bit in the minority, but I do still, I treat, you know, Dupixin as a biologic, I do like to know what my patients are like at baseline because, you know, if something happens, you don't know if it's drug related if you don't have that. So I do usually like to get just the baseline cell count, metabolic profile, rule out TB, tuberculosis, you know, just to make sure. And, if, you know, depending on area or age, hepatitis, just to be sure. Because even in our kids, our atopic kids, you have some who are overweight, obese, who may have fatty liver, which may or may not impact their therapies, but you don't want to kind of cloud, is it related to the medicine or not? You know, and depending on, on location, I mean, TB has gone down, but we certainly, at least in San Diego, it's, it's something that still consider and rarely have, have picked up. So I still do that. Yeah. So I know we're talking more about traditional lab tests and new serum lab tests that are on the horizon. But when I think about what's really on the horizon for lab testing and AD and other inflammatory diseases, I can't help but think about microbiome testing and what we're um, lacking in knowledge and probably um, really could improve if we were aware of microbiome on the skin, but also microbiome and the gut and what relevance, if at all, it has. And if we could match certain flora and their counts and their presence or absence to, to um, mark trends and disease and follow that as well. And then that could lead to some alterations of the microbiome, perhaps by therapies or dietary interventions that then could help us and be adjuvant therapy to our drug choices. Because I think it impacts not only the disease, but it might actually impact the drugs that we choose to treat. Let's quickly discuss uh, adverse events, albite rare with um, 
with dupilumab, you know, have you guys been seeing, you know, facial dermatitis, psoriasiform rashes, uh, arthralgias, arthritis, and, and of course, any any conjunctivitis that's made it bad enough for you to, you know, do something different. Go ahead, Don. For me, facial dermatitis, yes, and enough to stop the medication, although these, this was two adult patients. Conjunctivitis, I do think it kind of, at least from my experience, has kind of matched the studies, which I would say about maybe 10%. And so far, most of the time can treat with, with drops um, or lower the dose. I think I've only had one, but they already had underlying eye disease that I actually, like I said, was debating taking them off, you know, now that hopefully soon there'll be another medication to switch to. I haven't personally experienced anyone with a psoriasiform rash, albeit I know it's been reported. Yes, I've had a couple of conjunctivitis patients. I treat it with eye drops, um, periocular TCIs or low-dose steroids. We've been able to maintain patients on the drugs. I have not had an isolated facial dermatitis. I've not had a psoriasiform rash. However, just two weeks ago, I had a patient on dupilumab who ended up having an anaphylactic-like episode. Uh, we did not give a subsequent injection. I sent them to my colleagues in allergy uh, who determined that clinically based on timing and the exam or findings that occurred that they thought it was an anaphylactic reaction. And so we've listed it as a drug allergy. And I don't know if anybody else has had that happen with a patient to date with dupilumab. Um, yeah, I mean, it's list hypersensitivity actions are, list, uh, are listed, but that's different than dealing with it in your own, your own practice. We recently had an arthralgia, uh, borderline arthritis in a patient who was early on in her course of dupilumab, I think second dose or third dose was well worked up by rheumatology and uh, you know, probably the first team uh, uh, that, we've, you know, that we heard about, just not reported, but something to keep an eye out for. Um, so I just want to kind of make one comment that, I mean, about the, about what you mentioned about the psoriaform um, rashes. I mean, you know, uh, Larry, you and I actually share a patient, which is actually a, a Shirk Strauss patient who also, who has psoriasis and eczema. And we actually um, uh, used uh, um, dupilumab on top of mepolizumab for, for the Shirk Strauss. And we were worried that, I mean, perhaps her psoriasis would get worse um, because of um, the underlying mechanisms of action. But actually, I mean, it was interesting, even though her psoriasis didn't get better, it didn't get worse. And even after we added dupilumab. So it was kind of a kind of an interesting real life um, um, uh, observation example, so. Okay, let's move over to um, one of the things we, we started to discuss right up front, which is, um, how do you bring up or, or get patients comfortable with systemic therapy? So, so I just wanted to know, what do you do when parents or patients are particularly concerned about potential side effects, about the unknowns of drugs or calling drugs that, you know, experimental, even if they're already, uh, we've already been using them for a while. Do you have any, any approaches that you found useful or any advice for the audience? I mean, I think it helps to, to sometimes you know, besides our discussion is to have a peer to peer. I found that helpful is, you know, I, I'll ask one of my other parents or patients who have been through the same process, who are somewhat, you know, have worked as much as possible similar in terms of the same findings. And I think that when they can share, you know, that they had some of the same concerns, but how they work through it, that has helped as well. I think the other thing is, you know, they're new drugs, but like I said, we obviously use biologics a lot for psoriasis and Certainly there's many more than a decade, you know, 
plus of, of data in, in pediatrics even let alone adults is even longer um, of their use you know jack inhibitors at least you know it's approved for for adult you know rheumatoid arthritis as well so i i think you can draw upon you know that you know they're they're new but they're not all mechanistically new either you know there is data to use with that the one thing i did i was moved by a, a um, presentation at the sid uh, uh from april armstrong's uh, group um and uh an almost dr kasarjan i think he was a, a, a pre uh, medical school graduate fellow but the, the the this was for psoriasis but the discussion was on uh, decision framing on treatment preferences uh, which did better positive messaging or this bad stuff could happen so sort of negative messaging and the negative messaging won so i tend to sandwich now i say here's what can happen with a drug da 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 da, da. And on the other hand, if we don't do this, what are we going to do? We're going to continue to have sleep disturbance. We can have the influence on, you know, uh, psychological influences. You continue, you know, it's like this, we're going to be in this because, oh, and we'll just go back to the topicals like we were doing. So I, I really try to set up what the, the decision process would end up yielding if we don't go to a systemic when a systemic is really appropriate. And it's actually, I think, helped me to move a few, few patients along. I also think that, you know, it's, uh, I try to emphasize how far we've gone and why new isn't necessarily scary or bad. New is actually revolutionary and good because if you compare the newer drugs to the old systemics, I mean, the old systemics, none of them were approved for eczema and they were, uh, they had lots of monitoring labs and chock full of, of, of side effects. And I even talk to people about JAK inhibitors. I mean, we talk about the ones that have been used in rheumatology. There are the pan JAKs and less specific ones. And they were associated with probably some more adverse reactions. And now we have ones that are specifically designed for this to try to avoid and try to learn from the previous, uh, uh, the pitfalls and the challenges before. So I, so I frame it as, you know what? Newer's, it may not necessarily be scary. Newer could be better because we are learning from the past. I want to end up discussing a bit about education because part, um, part of what happens in the room is influenced by the patient's experiences and what they've heard about and messaging that happens outside of the dermatologist or allergist's office. And so I want to discuss, well, where do you think the pediatric community is, the general pediatric community, and how, how important you think it is to educate them about new systemic therapies? Um, do we expect them to take them up and, and prescribe them or just to know about them and, 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 and support the specialists doing it? And then the second question will be, you know, and education of, of patients prior to coming to the room, how do we influence that? So when I have a patient come to my office, um, I just say, who have you talked to about your atopic dermatitis besides coming to my clinic today? So that way I can see, you know, have they talked to their primary care provider about it? Is it a pediatrician or family provider? Is it an advanced practice provider? How many different providers have they seen? And then I just say, and what have you heard about dermatitis or perhaps treatment for this? So at least I know what frame of reference they're coming from. And with regards to empowering our primary care colleagues, I would say that primary care colleagues are in charge of knowing pretty much everything because they take care of patients in the front door across the whole spectrum and they can't be an expert in every disease, which is not their fault. 
And so if they feel comfortable within their comfort zone and they feel like they are well empowered to take care of atopic dermatitis patients, that's great. And my experience, the vast majority of them, if they feel it's time for a systemic before they pull that trigger, they will send to dermatology. And sometimes it's because um, the, the disease that's in front of us is not atopic dermatitis, or it's got a comorbidity such as allergic contact derm, or perhaps it's AD, but it, or it looks like AD, but it's really psoriasis. Um, so I find that it's often helpful if we're at the bridge of systemic therapy for a dermatology consult, but I ask the patient their background and then that gives me an angle at which to come back with empowerment. And I actually proactively ask them about social media and patient advocacy groups, which are great resources for patients. Um, but patients can learn all sorts of things from that, that we're not aware of because we're not necessarily in that space. Yeah. So I, no, I, I agree. I think, you know, from the pediatrician standpoint, you know, having spoken at a couple of the AAP meetings, I think the pediatricians are, are very well and open to learning about it. They're actually also very excited to hear about what's coming up because obviously they also see, see these patients, you know, even before we do. I think the vast majority will not be feeling like they want to be the ones to prescribe systemic therapies, but I think it's good to, to have them aware and to start to be advocates because like I said, we're dealing with a lot of patients who have dealt with years and years of severe disease, right? But now if we have the ability to reach earlier, get them earlier before that, have, have pediatricians who are on board that there's more that can be done. I think we can start to make a change, you know, from earlier ages and not wait till, you know, there's the difficulties and the things I said that we're, we're, we've been, been facing now. Um, but I agree. I think, you know, reaching out, reaching out to those who are savvy in terms of social media um, and other, other ways to reach out to parents, to teens, to the young kids, you know, with these, these, these um, treatments and what they're about will certainly help. Yeah, and I think, you know, the, the, the Pediatric Germ Research Alliance, we have some, some good investigators who are interested in looking at health literacy. And I think I want to get even more people involved, that interface of both patient support organizations, patients, and then, you know, physician specialists who are going to look at what's the best way to educate people about the disease and change some of the language amongst other practitioners. But I still think we have a lot of, a lot of change to do as we bring uh, better disease control with our, our newer agents. Any other comments on how we think we should be educating either patients or the physician community? Bob? And I want to add to that. I mean, that, you know, it's, um, it is important to kind of get our referral base, uh, uh, the pediatricians to be more aware of, of the, of the developments and, and, and things on the horizon, um, because then they have a better idea of how to refer, when to refer. And, and a lot of times, I mean, I get these referrals coming in and, um, for AD and I, and, and, and the pediatricians always say, oh my gosh, it must be that milk or that peanut or that egg that's causing your terrible eczema. I mean, go see the allergist. And, and I would have to tell the family, I say, you know, I mean, your pediatrician has sent you to the right place, potentially for the wrong reasons. And I don't necessarily think that that 
that milk is driving this six-year-old's um, eczema. But I think that, you know, we have other options that we can talk about. We can educate. I mean, this is an opportunity for us to educate on skincare. This is an opportunity to educate on the relationship between AD and uh, atopic sensitizations. And this is an opportunity to talk about potential for systemic therapy if you're severe enough. So I think that's informing them, not necessarily because they're going to be the ones yeah, who are going to be the treating physicians, but they're going to be better, more informed referral base. Well, I do think that we have, um, um, we'll have more opportunities to discuss the interface of uh, patients and families and physicians with our next podcast, which will come out either as a pre-Christmas present or post-Christmas present, which is really looking at, at patient perspectives on therapies for mild severe atopic dermatitis. And, and we're going to be involving some patients and representatives of some of the very important uh, organizations that serve as, a, uh, serve as advocates for patients and families with eczema, National Eczema Association and uh, Global Parents for Eczema Research. So that'll be a different kind of discussion. I always learn from those forums when I'm talking to patients about their experiences, where the disease and where they think their community is and where, you know, where their physicians are, et cetera. So we look forward uh, to that. And then we'll also have our, our open, open, as I said, open chat night, uh, our town hall coming up on December 8th, where we'll have this great faculty. I think Megan Tolson is joining us as well. And as I said, Eric Simpson, Emma Gutman. So we get some of the, 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 the specialists who've treated hundreds of patients with different biologic agents and jack inhibitors, et cetera, um, to give their input on where they think the uh, pediatric uh, uh, um, atopic uh, dermatitis crew is going and get their input on that. So I, I thank you guys for a tremendously interesting uh, discussion. And I thank everyone for joining us and uh, hope you'll join us for both the next podcast that'll be coming and uh, one of our two town halls to discuss uh, more about uh, uh, pediatric atopic dermatitis. And I thank the Pedra staff for putting this together and allowing us to uh, reach out to our uh, uh, brethren who are out there helping to take care of patients. Thank you. Thank you so much for listening. Special thanks to Drs. Eichenfeld, Tom, Gang, and Davis for speaking and providing content. This podcast was supported by grant funding from Pfizer.